0: We're in our parables section of the book of Luke. Take your Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Parables, stories that change us. I hope you've been in change over these last series and allowing God to do his work in you. Every week we come together and allowing him to change you. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate storyteller. I mean, he could tell stories that were incredible, and he always had those mic drop moments. You know what I'm talking about. He would be telling a story and... Bam, that aha moment would jump out and grab you. He'd grab his audience or he'd have that, right in the middle of the story, he'd have a plot twist. Or, I didn't see that one coming. Where did, where did that one come from? I didn't see that coming at all. And you see that in the parables we've been looking at already. Uh, the first parable we looked at was in Luke chapter 12. And you have this idea of the servants expectantly watching and waiting and looking for the master to come back and the master return. And then when he comes back, the plot, switch, the, the plot changes. The, uh, there's a twist on it. The master begins to serve all the other servants. They're like, I didn't see that one coming. You mean the master's going to come back and literally wait on me? What an incredible story. The first one we looked at was Luke chapter 11, and he talks about the parable of prayer and the midnight visitor, and he comes in the middle of the night, it's 12 o'clock midnight, and he's asking for bread, and he knocks, and he keeps on knocking, and the Bible says that he will not answer the door because he's a friend, but because of importunity, because he's driving me crazy because he's bold, because he's shaming me out here in front of all my neighbors. And so then I will come and I will answer for him. And then he gets down to the end of the story and tells another little quick story right at the very end. It has this incredible plot twist. He says, how many fathers would give a scorpion or a snake to their own kids? No sadistic dick. Dad would do that, and so you have this twist of plot right there on the scene. He totally flips the switch, and, uh, and then he says, but how much more? How much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask him? An incredible parable there. And then Luke chapter 14, we looked at that last week, and Jesus is having dinner, and he says, don't take the best seats in the house, take the lowest And the the plot twist for the Jews is: are they thought they had reserved seats? They thought they had their place in the kingdom of God already set apart. But they begin to make their excuses. And he says, "There's going to be a second invitation. There's going to be even a third invitation." We're going to go all the way around the world and bring everybody we can to sit at the Lord's table. And so every time the Lord tells the story, there's this mic drop, this aha moment, this where he draws us in by the story, and then he just does this total change that, that catches us off guard. He does the very same thing in this parable we're going to look at. He's going to talk about a very shrewd manager, a dishonest manager, but he's going to commend him for what he did for being dishonest in some ways. And so already he draws us in and gets our attention. Now I have got to admit a weakness to you that I have, and so I'm going to confess in front of everybody right here and tell you what this weakness of mine is. I like to watch gangster movies. And they're not the best movies. i got to be honest, they're probably not the best. A lot of people get killed in those movies. It's happening all the time, and that is not a good thing. I try to justify it in my own mind by saying, well, they're based on true stories. And so uh, I watch these uh, gangster movies. and uh, and And so what happens, though, is those movies begin to draw you in, and you find yourself rooting for the bad guy. You wind up rooting for the anti-hero or the protagonist, and he becomes the protagonist, and so you got Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, and they're embodying Clyde, and you're waiting for them to escape. You want them to get away, and then when they all get shot up in that car, you're going, oh, no, I didn't see that one coming. I, was, I wasn't pulling for that, or, or Don Corleone, and he's got this big wad of something, and, and uh, Marlon Brando's there, and, and, he, and he's... And you know it's kiss his ring and you want him to get revenge and you want you want him to win you want their team to win even though he's a bad guy they kill people they torture people they shoot people but somehow the plot draws you in and you find yourself rooting for the bad guy uh, uh lucky luciano you're, you're you're rooting that he's going to stay out of prison and not get put in there and so you, you just kind of those those movies just kind of suck you in and you wind up rooting for the bad guys they scheme they torture they murder they escape justice and they thrive and they they get all kinds of money and women and everything else and they thrive and it just doesn't seem right to cheer them on because basically they're bad right these are dishonest shrewd bad guys butch cassidy and the sundance kid i don't know about that but uh that, that one really got me. Paul Newman, Robert Redford, who couldn't love those guys? And uh, raindrops keep falling on my head and you're singing it through the whole movie and you're all excited about these guys and at the end, they're in Bolivia and they come running out. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Bah. They all get shot down and they're, down, they're gone. and We lose our heroes. This story is that kind of story. You've got a shrewd, dishonest manager. You've got a crook. You've got a liar, you've got a cheater, you've got a stealer on the hand, and 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 the Bible says, Jesus says, He commends this guy for his shrewdness. And there's the mic drop. There's the flipping the script. I didn't see that one coming. I never thought he'd commend that guy. He's a bad dude. And so he sucks us into the story. So let's stand together and read it. Incredible, incredible story, incredible parable. We're gonna learn a lot today about shrewdness, not in the world's point of view, but shrewdness for the kingdom of God. How can we be wise in God's kingdom? How do we operate? Let's read it, verse number one. And Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. And so this dishonest guy, he's fired. You're let go. You're cut loose. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into, so that people will welcome me into their houses so he called in each one of his master's debtors <clears throat> excuse me he asked the first how much do you owe my master 800 gallons of olive oil he replied the manager told him take your bill sit down and make it 400 and he asked the second how much do you owe and he said "A 1000 bushels of wheat and he replied he told him take your bill make it 800 the master commended commended Mic drop, the dishonest manager, because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more, uh, excuse me, the people of this world, I lost my place, uh, are, uh, uh, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into your your eternal dwelling. Let us pray. Father, help us, I pray, today as we look at your word. Open up our hearts. Teach us how that we can be children of light. And We love you, God, and we praise you for your sweet presence. And we ask it in your mighty name. Amen. Turn to someone, tell them what your favorite gangster movie is, and then you may be seated. In Jesus' day, 80 to 90% of the people in Israel lived as peasants. And they were kind of tenant farmers. And so you had all, it was an agricultural society, and so most of the people lived on the farms. They lived on the land. They were tenant farmers. They took care of their, their land. And, and, and so they lived always on the edge of poverty. Uh, they were they, uh, Almost all the land in Palestine was owned by the elite absentee landowner. And so you've got the very rich who own all the property, all the land, and it's managed by all these tenant sharecroppers who come in and, and watch it. And they are heavily taxed with their crops for the rental use of the land. And so what happens, for example, rents could run about 25 to 33% of their grain yield. So whatever they raised in, pro, in crops... 25 to 33% would go back to the landowner, and they would get to keep about 68, 69% of the crops for them and their family, make their own living. 50% of their fruit yield was not very unusual for taxation, and so you worked the fruit, you worked the land, owner got 50%, those who raised all the crops, they got 50%. If you were a peasant farmer in the first century, you were one crop failure away or one drought away from financial ruin and debtor's prison and extreme, extreme poverty. And so they very much counted on a good crop, good produce, and then it was split between the landowner and the tenant themselves. Then they would also have a manager. The manager would oversee the absentee landowner's property. And he would make sure everybody was doing their job, and he made sure all the bills were paid. He made sure all the crops were collected for the owner. And he just took care of all the grounds, took care of all the finances, all the resources, all the crews. Uh, He took care of all them. Now, in this case, we're going to call this manager Robin. So, So we have a name to attach to him. There's no name given. Just call him Robin. Everybody say Robin. Okay. So Robin is there, and he is the manager. And he is over all the other tenant farmers who are out there and the boss sees robin says robin you are doing a lousy job you're fired pack your stuff pack your belongings pack your things get on the road you're fired verse one says he was fired because he was wasting his possessions in other words we can infer many things from this he's probably a lousy manager He has cost overruns. He's not managing the books at all very well, so the profit is going down for the land owner. Possibly he is embezzling or stealing from the owner. We don't know. It doesn't go into great detail. It just says he was losing money. So he's probably lining his own pockets with the money that's made from the sale of the produce and keeping it off the books. Just don't put it on the books. Just don't show it. I'll sell you some food on the side. I'll sell you some food over here. And he's lining his pockets during this entire time or entire exchange. And so he's ripping off the, the, the landowner. And maybe he's just lazy. You know, later it says, I'm, I'm not strong enough to beg. Well, he may have been getting up there and maybe a uh, dig, excuse me. I'm not strong enough to dig. And maybe he is just a lazy property manager. And so for him, that would be a shameful demotion. So the manager is on his way out the door. He's been fired. And so Robin begins to play Robin Hood. And what he's going to do is take from the rich and give to the poor. And so he devises this entire scheme. Robin Hood says, I will take from the landowner and I will give it back to the poor tenants, which are many which are the majority who are in that day and age. So what he does is immediately he begins to cut their payments down. And so the guy who owes them olive oil, he says, I'll take your bill and I'll cut 50% off the top. Just just write your bill, make your own bill, just give me half of the oil you're owed the owner. He didn't ask the owner if he could do this, he just does it. He says, I'll give you a 20% discount on your wheat harvest. Just give me 20% less of what you were going to give, give the landowner. And he does this completely on his own initiative. No one's told him or instructed him how to do this. He just simply says, I'm going to do it, and he takes his own initiative. At this point in the story, all the poor in the audience are going nuts because they're saying, great, he's going to stick it to the rich owner. They didn't like the rich back then either. And so we're going to stick it to the wealthy. We're going to stick it to the rich. And they're all cheering wildly as they hear Jesus tell this incredible story. And he weaves the story together. He's got the mic drop coming up. And so they're all going nuts. It is a brilliant move by the manager because he's setting himself up for the future. Now follow me here. He is making friends with all those tenant farmers so his future will be set. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. I'll take care of you if you take care of me. The manager applied the first rule of politics, always be generous with other people's money. (laughs) First rule of politics, always be generous with other people's money. You just watch how they spend your money, by the way. The owner sees the records, he comes back, he sees the books, he, he sees the manager cleaning out his desk, he's heading out the door, and he begins to check on all the books and check on all the finances. And, uh, but, but rather than throwing the manager into prison for insider trading, he commends him for being shrewd. Now that's where the mic drop. dropped. That, that, that's where Jesus Christ totally... Flips the script. This is where he totally, uh, there's a plot change right in the middle. That's the one we didn't see coming. How is a crook commended? How is the bad guy praised? You get the scenario? Here's the problem. He knows the whole village is celebrating their new hero. Everybody loves Robin Hood. And so rather than turn everybody against him, he takes the loss off of his books and praises the manager and says, this guy's brilliant. And so now the owner can save face. It's all about shame, it's all about honor, it's all about that culture. So now he shames face, even though he's going to lose all that wheat, all that olive oil, he's going to save face with everybody else who is watching, and he's going to ride his manager's newfound popularity as Robin Hood. Okay. From a worldly point of view, the manager is brilliant. This is a brilliant move. But Jesus' story is not about how to manage a business for your advantage. His story is how we operate as people of light. And this is where he begins to make the switch. So I take you back to verse number eight. The manager commends the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. But that's, he says the story's not about that. Finish the verse. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of Of light. This is a kingdom parable. This is all about the people of light. This is how we operate as children of the king and people of light. And there's two points that we can learn from this, two lessons that we need to learn today as people of light on how we function. First of all, I want you to look at your initiative, your initiative. Where is your initiative taking you? What is your initiative causing you to do? This man on his own mind, on accord, took his own initiative, to prepare for his future. Now keep in mind, here in this story, the target audience are the disciples, not the lost. So that you can't read into this, we can earn our way into salvation by doing good things. He's writing to the people of light. So once we have been saved, once we have asked Jesus Christ into our hearts, how do we act with one another? He's writing to people of light. This is not about your entrance into heaven. It's about how we live every single day of our lives as children of the light. Now, here's the rub. The hard reality is the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. So, to take the lesson for us, what if God's people applied this same kind of determination? Same kind of ingenuity, same kind of initiative, same kind of effort that the world uses to succeed. What if we invest that same kind of effort into the kingdom of God? What if we, as children of life, put that much energy into his church? What if we put that much energy into reaching the world for the kingdom of God? What if we put as much initiative into reaching lost people as this guy did? and preparing for his future. How much time and effort and initiative do we invest in his kingdom and the things of God? How much time and initiative do we invest in our marriage for the kingdom of God and to our kids and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God? How much time and initiative do we invest in evangelism and reaching lost people for the kingdom of God? And he says, you know what, sometimes the people of this world in their worldly pursuits puts the church to shame problem is the kingdom of this world has so affected us that we have become self-centered like the world around us. Our best efforts go into this world's kingdom and not our heavenly kingdom. And so we spend our lives creating wealth, working our jobs, seeking out power, all for right now. The world says wealth is good. The world says greed is good. The world says pleasure is good. And all the direction, all the initiative in the world is focused on myself. That's exactly what the manager's doing. He's thinking about himself. Everything is focused on himself. Okay, you got that? We live our lives as if we are the rich property owner. Remember, there's two main characters in the story. There's the shrewd manager who is commended. There is also the very wealthy property owner who owns all the land. And the problem is, when God blesses us with stuff, we begin to think, that's my stuff. And we take the place of the owner and not the manager. We don't own anything we have, people. We are people of the light. We belong to the kingdom of God. So my house is not my own. My car is not my own. My money is not my own. My, my family is not my own. Nothing is my own. I am the manager. And we forget that and we flip the roles and we begin to act like the property owner and not the property manager in this parable we are the property manager he's comparing the people of light to the manager of the business it all belongs to god the wisdom of the shrewd manager is that he was always preparing for his future that's the brilliance of this guy he's creating jobs for himself in the future so he doesn't have to dig ditches doesn't have to beg on a street corner he's 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 greasing the palms, so he's always got a job waiting for him. And he says, he is smarter than you guys are because all we're thinking about is here and right now. The wisdom in the kingdom is that we lay up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. So the question is, how do I do that? How do I invest in heaven? How do I lay up treasures up there? How how does all that happen? When I invest my time and my energy and my money in the kingdom of God, I am laying up for my future just like this shrewd manager did. You see, when you really get serious about the kingdom, now listen to me, when you get serious about kingdom and kingdom living and kingdom life, it will cost you. Sorry to burst your bubble there. It's going to cost you. going to cost you. No way of getting around it. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you when you open up your hand and your hearts to serve someone else in need. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you money, it may cost you both of those things. It's going to cost you. For Jesus Christ, it cost him his entire life so that we might have everlasting life. And then he goes on to say, whosoever would come unto me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow after me. We don't like to hear about cost. Your initiative must change from self to others and God. Kingdom pursuit, blessing others. It is faithfulness to God's kingdom because that is that which is eternal. So our direction changes, our initiative changes, our actions change, everything about us. Pick it up with verse number nine. I want to read the Rest of this story, I tell you, to Tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into your eternal dwellings. This is not about the here and now. He's talking about eternity. Live with eternity in mind. Live with eternity in your focus. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, with God's, who will give you property of your own? Now, now the disciples are listening to this story. Jesus is telling the story, and all the disciples have tuned in. They've they, they watch this incredible plot. He just we, just a master storyteller, and they're all listening there. But you know what? They're thinking, we're really off the hook because we don't have anything. This is not about me because I'm poorer than dirt, right? Oh, we don't have a dime. We've already left everything. This parable doesn't apply to me. This is for somebody else in the room. How many, yeah, how many times have you sat in service, and I'm glad so-and-so is here to hear that today? Boy! <laughs> I'm glad they're listening to this. I'm glad they came this morning so they can hear that message because they really needed that, right? <laughs> and, and, and the disciples are doing the same thing. They, they, they're thinking, I'm glad these Pharisees are hearing this. This is awesome because we're off the hook. We have nothing. We're, we're poor. But Jesus says, this disagrees. He talks about if you can't be trusted with little, How will I trust you with much? This parable has nothing to do about how much you have. It's what are you doing with what God's given you right now? This is not a rich man, poor man parable. It's for everybody parable. And the bottom line is if you can't handle just a, a little bit in your poverty and you can't be faithful with that which God has blessed you with, how can he ever bless you with more? And so he hones in on everybody in the room. Only as you get in the habit of generosity and trustworthiness will God bless you with more resources to handle. No matter how high the value of your resource, the habits you form now will stay with you. Faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. So everybody's included with our money And our time and our energy, we are stewards. We are managers of that which God has blessed us with. So the point is, what would happen if we shifted our initiative away from self and really got serious about the kingdom of God and says, Lord, it's all about you and other people? Our whole life would change. Where is our initiative? What are we doing in regards to the kingdom? So the question then remains, how do you remain faithful and do what God's telling us to do? How can you be faithful a little and faithful a much, and what's the motivation for doing that? And that takes me to point number two. You've got to know who your boss is. When you understand your boss, this all becomes easy stuff to do, great stuff to do. Now, now stay with me here. Verse 13, let me read it to you. No servant can serve two masters. Who's your boss? Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. And here it is God and money. Now, when you know who your master is, everything else falls into place. It's not a problem, it's not an issue. There is a huge divide between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of this earth and the kingdom of heaven. They are di- diametrically opposed to one another. So you have to first decide whose kingdom am I going to be in? And I'm, am I going to live in this world and be a part of this world's kingdom, or am I going to live in the kingdom of my Lord and Savior, my new boss, the Lord Jesus Christ? Whose kingdom am I going to be in? Who's going to be my boss? Now, once you decide who your boss is going to be, and you make a decision that says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm following Jesus. I'm giving my life to him. Once you make a decision that says, I'm going to follow Jesus, and he's going to be my Lord and my master, once you make that decision, then you've got to learn how to live within that kingdom. You become a person of light, people of light, you got to learn how to live within that kingdom. If you're in the kingdom of this world, you will become a slave to your possessions and your passions. Some, you ought to write that down. Put it on your notes. That's a good statement. If, you, if this kingdom is your world, if the world is your kingdom, you will become a slave to your possessions and your passions. The trouble is... If that's what you choose, you will miss out on what your creator designed you for. What your master made you for. When you begin to understand how amazing your new boss is, your heavenly father is, the how much more God, the God that is full of grace and mercy and love and abundance and compassion. When you understand how great he is, it's no decision. It's a no brainer. Mm. he's all-sufficient, all-powerful, God of love and of grace. And so what happens is when you understand who your new boss is, you will view your time, your short span of time on the earth differently. Because now I'm thinking about my eternal home and my eternal life, and I have eternal life within me, and so now I view every day I live my life on this earth differently because I know who my new boss is. He's the boss of eternity. And I realize that God has a holy, divine purpose for me. God creates Adam and Eve. What's he do? Sets him in a garden. He says, I'm giving you the garden. I own the garden. You take care of it. Manage the garden. Name the animals. Do all that kind of stuff. You just take care of my garden. And then he tells them something. You will be blessed if you do that. He says, you will be fruitful and you will multiply. Blessing. Take care of my stuff, manage it well, and I will bless you. Be fruitful and multiply. Bless. God's blessing. And he says, so that I can have a relationship with you. Later, Abraham comes along. Abraham, he says, Abraham, you're going to make you the father of many nations. I will multiply, I will bless your descendants. You will be as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. I will bless you beyond your wildest imagination once you roll into your purpose. And he says, so that you and I and your descendants can have a relationship. Relationship. So you can have a relationship with your father, with your new boss. Now, God calls his church. And what's he tell his church? The same thing he told Adam and Eve, the same thing he told Abraham, he tells his church, be fruitful and multiply. Right? You getting this? So that I can bless you with abundant life. The enemy comes to steal kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And he says, I do this so that we can have a relationship. It's all about our relationship with God. So what do we do? He says, take my message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Multiply. Spread out. So we can all have a relationship. We manage the Father's estate. And that is my purpose. And then he blesses us with a relationship with an awesome, incredible, good, good heavenly Father. The blessing he gives are never to be hoarded. Once we start hoarding the blessings of God for ourselves, we are shifting the initiative back on ourselves and not on all the poor peasant farmers all around us. But they are to enable us to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. So I give you my resources. I give you my stuff so you can fulfill your calling, so you can be fruitful and multiply, so that more people can have a relationship with your wonderful God. Are you getting this? This is it. I mean, I just shared the whole Bible in about, right there, in in, in the last three minutes. Mm. Whatever God has blessed you with, your time, your talents, and resources, Use it to bless others and advance his kingdom. And when you do that, you are laying up for eternity. That's why he says, people of light, don't you get it? This dishonest crook is smarter than you guys because he's got a bigger perspective of life. He's looking for his eternity. He's looking to his future. And you're missing it. Oh, But you got to decide who you're going to serve. You can't be in both worlds. You can't serve God and money. You, You can't serve this world system, and you can't serve in God's kingdom. Why? Because they are opposite of each other. The kingdom of this world is all about myself, greed, pleasure, lust. The kingdom of God is about giving and life. You can't serve both. Live in this world as children of light. I, I, uh, a wife and I, you know, and, and every year, and most of you, if, if, a lot of you do this, we, we plan for our vacations, don't you? Don't you think about vacation, you think about where you're gonna do and where you're gonna go and what you're gonna do and you wanna plan that out. And some of the some of the excitement of vacation is planning and getting ready for it and, and so you say, Well do we drive or fly? That's the first decision you gotta make. Where am I going? How far is it? How long is it gonna take me to get there? How much of my vacation time is gonna be spent driving? Is it worthwhile to fly? How do I get there? Do I go a beach house or a lake house? Uh, or, or we're just going to sightsee, go to a city and sightsee it, and walk around that city and, and do that kind of thing and, and see everything else around us. Uh, how are we going to travel? Or am I going go on a cruise? Or, and what's my budget going to be like? Uh, how much money is this vacation going to take me and going to cost me? And we put all kinds of future planning in. Uh, planning to our future vacation. We'll plan very thoughtfully about our future vacation because you only get so many weeks and you're going to be with your family for a short time and you want to maximize the time to the very best what you need. And yet we spend so little time thinking about our future in all eternity. And he says, if you could just do that, you just get eternity Think with eternal eyes. Think with eternal vision. This is a parable about eternity. It's all about forever and ever and ever. My, my, my. Two takeaways. Number one, jot these down. Kingdom people have a clear vision of their future. Their future with God, their future in heaven, their future on the earth, their future purpose, their future... Everything they do points to eternity, not just to, uh, and, and this is the theme of many of the parables. I mean, you, as you look at all the parables, a lot of the parables are about the future kingdom, the future banquet, the future celebration, the, 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 the master returning and being ready and being watching and being living your life to the fullest to, in the kingdom of God. It's about the future. Thus, true kingdom living, we use God's resources today to invest in My future. To help those Jesus pointed to. So I use kingdom resources to reach the poor, the blind, the lame, and the maimed. Remember that last parable? Okay, You got it. They're all coming together now. Those who need help and those who need the gospel. And The second takeaway is this. Kingdom people are single-minded. A real kingdom person is single-minded. Their mind is all about the kingdom. That's why he says you can't serve both, God and money. My mind is single-minded, purposeful. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. I don't hold on to the world and try to hold on to the kingdom of God. A slave can't obey two masters. And here's the problem. If you have a slave shared by two owners, what happens when one owner tells the slave to do this and another owner tells the slave to do this? And they're opposite. They're different. He can't serve both. It can't happen. When our own thinking becomes cloudy, and my eyes begin to lose focus on the kingdom of God, we need a reminder who I am and who I'm serving and who's my boss. Remind ourselves, who's my boss? What am I living for? What's my purpose? Turn to Philippians chapter 3. I just want to read one, one passage to you. Listen to the Apostle Paul. I mean, We're done. I promise you we're done. Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Verse 10 and 11. Listen to this. I want you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ and him crucified. That's the upward calling in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us today. Help us today, mighty God. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who does not know you, that before they leave this place, they will come to know you as Lord and Savior. They will find a new boss, a new father, a new master this morning. Awesome God in you. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.